Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Spernova's Interview Series, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova's Interview Series. Welcome to Stranova's podcast interview series, volume 34. Our topic today is virtual distance. Before you spend a great deal of time puzzling over what that phrase might mean, I would like to invite each of you to think about some of the closest relationships in your life right now. Yes, I know this is a podcast series about strategic innovation in business, but for this particular question, think just about those closest of your personal relationships. These may be friends, family, spouses, children, or business associates. So right now, go ahead and come up with a couple of names of those you feel most connected with. Take your time. I'll pause for a bit. Ready? Now that you have a couple of names, I want you to think about what it is that makes the relationship between you and those on your list so connected. There will undoubtedly be an emotional bond between you, perhaps as spouses, perhaps as siblings, perhaps just as lifelong friends. And, like most people, you probably feel pretty much up to date on what they're involved with, at least with respect to the bigger things in their lives, and that they know you as well. And, perhaps even more important still, you know you can talk about virtually anything that involves the two of you. Sound right so far? Now let me ask you a question that cuts to the heart of what today's podcast is about. How many of those that are on your list of closest relationships are actually physically around you every day? How many of those are people you actually see and engage with directly every single day? For those that are on this list that you do not see every day, how is it that your relationship with them stays so vital and connected? Do you write them emails regularly, call them on a periodic basis, maybe even daily, or perhaps do you travel to be together with them often? And even if you do all of these, how do you keep the communication deep enough that you don't fall into discussing just the superficial topics of the day? And now I'd like you to think about those that you do see every day and who are also important to you both personally and professionally, but who somehow did not fall into the closest relationship list. What is it that distinguishes those relationships, both in content and true bond, from that list of people that you do not see every day, but who made the top of that closest relationship list? It is exactly these issues that frame the challenge of what our guest this week, Dr. Karen Sobel-Lejewski, calls virtual distance. Because the reality is that the closest relationships we have are not simply defined by our physical proximity to them. We may have a best friend who we haven't seen in years, but who we feel closer to than perhaps a family member we actually live with. And why is this so relevant to business? 
Well, for one thing, we can all identify with having colleagues we work with daily and who are also critical to our organization's success and who are also, well, distant when it comes to discussing the most difficult of issues. Sometimes that distance is because of our busier business lives that are filled with meetings. Sometimes it's because of the increased use of email instead of what should be readily available personal contact. Either way, we all know the symptoms, and they tend to feed on themselves to make things even worse over time. Further, in what are now extremely challenging times for many businesses around the world, it is also critical to find ways to stay even more closely connected with key employees, consultants, and even strategic partners based sometimes half the way around the world from us. Strangely enough, in part because we know these distant connections require more work to hold close, sometimes we are more able to manage those physically distant relationships than with those that may work only a cubicle or a short walk away from us on a daily basis. And with our busy business lives filled with meetings all day long, we may not even make contact with those that are just next door. In each case, the physical distance between us and those we need to connect with closely in business is not the true measure of our organizational intimacy. It is, instead, the virtual distance between us, regardless of its physical measure, that matters. To tell us more about this, we are pleased to have Dr. Karen Sobel Lajeski, Chief Executive Officer of Virtual Distance International, with us today. Dr. Lajeski co-founded her company in 2004 to help organizations improve how closely connected they are even in this highly demanding digital age, with a key part of this process being the application of a tool she and her team developed to help companies assess the true virtual distance there is between its co-workers. Dr. Lajeski holds a PhD from the Stevens Institute of Technology, plus undergraduate degrees in computer science and applied mathematics. She is a widely sought after speaker on a variety of business topics and is the author of Uniting the Virtual Workforce, Transforming Leadership and Innovation in the Globally Integrated Enterprise, published in April 2008. Well, Karen, thanks for joining us on Stranova. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Brad. Well, I think a great place for us to start is this whole concept of virtual distance, which is something that the phrase probably sounds like it means something to a lot of people, but I know that you have a very specific definition in mind. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what that concept of virtual distance is and why is it so important for business and society in general today? Well, virtual distance is a growing phenomenon born out of the digital age. And what it means find is a psychological gap that begins to grow when we over-rely on electronic communication to collaborate and communicate with one another. So it's kind of a cognitive sense of being far away from others that is coming through when we truly use email and other types of electronic communications in most of our day-to-day lives. The reason why it's so important is because we've been able to actually measure the extent to which virtual distance exists and the extent to which it impacts critical outcomes for the organization. So beyond kind of the definition of virtual distance, this growing psychological gap, we actually can see the extent to which it could be putting corporations and individuals at risk for decreased performance and innovation issues and problems and challenges 
as well as lower job satisfaction, morale, and the like. These kinds of troubling trends are things that businesses truly need to get a handle on if they are going to improve organizational outcomes into the future. And from a societal point of view, it's important that we recognize that virtual distance has become a part of our lives. And when we leave the office or our digital office, if you will, we take some of these perceptions with us into our family and friends and the like, and they can have ripple effects in the way we live our lives just day to day. This is certainly a big deal today. I myself have led organizations which had groups all over the world reporting in at one time, and that was a little bit challenging, and we may not have used the term, but we were certainly conscious of the implications of that. So I think I understand it, but isn't this a pretty hard thing to measure? I mean, we're talking about how people communicate, which isn't necessarily about how much they talk with each other, but in a sense, how effectively they communicate. So other than the obvious measurement of end results, such as productivity, time to market, return on investment, and so on, depending on who you're talking to about this, how do you measure this, and how do you help companies and organizations do this? That's a great question, Brad. I think the first thing in terms of the measuring of virtual distance is we have to step back and understand that virtual distance is not equal to kind of the physical distance or other traditional ways we look at what can separate us. So we spent a few years researching this, and we spoke to dozens of executives that now have about 300 project teams and thousands of data in our database that represent different aspects of the kinds of businesses that separate us today. So, for example, one thing that we can measure, obviously, is physical distance, the extent to which we're geographically separate or we're separate by time zones or we're separated by organizational affiliation. I work for company A and you work for company B. And that can be organizational distance. But those kinds of traditional measures don't really reflect in total the kinds of things that accrue cognitively or psychologically when we're working with a computer most of the time in order to collaborate and communicate. So in order to measure virtual distance, we have to look at physical distance. It certainly has an influence on virtual distance, but it's not enough to create it. So what we did was we found two other factors, two other components that really make a much more significant difference. And those are operational distance, or what we call operational distance, and those are kinds of the day-to-day things that get in the way of us collaborating, communicating effectively. For example, too much multitasking can add to a sense of virtual distance or being separate from others. A sense of technical support that is not available when we need it, it's not ready when we need it, like you know, conference call equipment going on the blink, things like that can create a sense of separation. And we're not really trained as individuals per se to know what type of communication, what mode of communication to use for any given circumstance. So when do I send an email? When do I use the phone? When do I ask for face-to-face. These are all questions that we're really not trained to do. And when we use the wrong communication mode for certain situations, it creates a kind of operational distance between us. And then the third component is what we call affinity distance. 
And what affinity distance has to do with is the fundamental relationship dynamics that people exhibit towards one another that help us to understand one another. And so these kinds of things include things like our cultural value systems, our communication styles, the extent to which we're alike or different in terms of the status we hold in an organization, the extent to which we've worked together before or have some of the same people in common that we know, and the extent to which we feel interdependent on one another. And so when you step back and you look at these three components, you look at physical distance, you look at operational distance, and you look at affinity distance, which we measure actually with scales, one to five kind of scale in an objective fashion, and you put them all together, we are able to come up with the virtual distance index, which is an indicator of how much or the extent to which virtual distance exists in the organization. One would be very low virtual distance, which would mean that the likelihood of success on major outcomes like innovation and performance and leader effectiveness are very high. And five being very high virtual distance, which means that the likelihood for success on those same outcomes is actually pretty low. Certainly this rings very close to home in a lot of ways, even to the cultural misunderstandings that are built into the way we work and operate. A good example is the American penchant for if it isn't written down, it didn't happen. It comes to contracts and things like that. And you talk to someone overseas, and actually Britain's a good example, the United Kingdom. You talk to them, and if you suggest that there was an agreement, that may actually be what they walk away thinking happened, even if it hasn't been written down. So I can understand that. Now, on a broader scale, if we take that concept of virtual distance you just talked about and think about the implications of this on any institution, whether it's government, business, nonprofits, or others, I'm guessing there are some sobering surprises organizations have made when they did what they thought were some of the right attempts to shorten virtual distances between employees or organizations. Can you give our listeners some highlights of things you've discovered that might come across as a bit counterintuitive? Yeah, again, that's a great question. I mean, what executives and leaders tend to do first when they sense that there are problems and issues in the company with respect to critical outcomes, let's say innovation or financial success, they tend to reach for what they know. And what we've known so far through our history with the industrial age, if you will, is that when we bring people together, physically, when we co-locate them, when we put them in the same place, we make the assumption that communications and collaborations will automatically improve. So there have been a couple of examples lately where executives have you know, sensed that things weren't right and insisted that people come back to the office. So for example, HP and Randy Mott recently, last year, I guess, or the year before, decided that in order to get better productivity and performance out of the IT workforce, he was going to and did implement a plan whereby people had to physically come into 25 locations throughout the world and give up the work situations they had in terms of being able to work from anywhere at any time. He assumed, obviously, that this would transform the organization and improve innovation and productivity. But 
The problem is, is that we know from our virtual distance data that we can find virtual distance in just as high levels in co-located organizations as we do when people are distributed. And this is actually something that makes sense when you start to think about it. But it's counterintuitive in terms of what do you do when you're trying to reach for better innovation and better organizational performance. So when companies look to try to improve innovation and success and job satisfaction and leader effectiveness and so forth, instead of going to kind of the usual suspects of solutions like, well, let's bring everybody together and kind of get rid of distributed work as one example of a reaction people have, leaders need to step back and to say, what is our virtual distance profile? Where and how are these issues really affecting us and on which vectors of virtual distance are they coming in? Because if we don't do that first, what can happen is we can waste a lot of time and a lot of money putting people back in the same location and not seeing any improvement in the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. In fact, we can see degradation where we were in terms of where we were when we started. For example, you know, in the HP example, many people left the company because they didn't want to actually move in order to have to come into one of these regional centers. And while I'm not positive how that affected HP directly, you can imagine that if you worked in an organization where you had become very used to working in a distributed fashion and had been very effective, then just simply coming back into a physical location may have a very negative effect on your attitude and motivations towards producing good work. Another example that we found was in the military where we were working with an organization who felt that the overriding culture of the organization would automatically bring people together no matter where they worked, whether they were distributed or co-located or whatever. And what we found after they had implemented a major transformation in the muscular unit of that organization was that cultural differences, value differences between subgroups within that organization were extremely diverse and differentiated. And when that organization made the transformation into a different kind of organizational structure, what they found was that they didn't get really the results that they wanted because they had overlooked a lot of issues around affinity between these subgroups that were never addressed in the transformation. And therefore, again, counterintuitively, ended up with results that were less than what they expected. So we help them to reframe the way in which they go forward with transformations of this sort into the future, and subsequent transformations have been done with a lot more success. It's certainly an interesting phenomenon, and even at the same time that people seem to be able to reach out more worldwide in interesting ways through social network communication. So one thing that I wondered about in listening to you talk about this is that when you apply this to internet-based social networks such as MySpace and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and everything else that's out there that, that are basically systems whose stated intent is to keep people better connected, things may not be as they seem. So I'm wondering what your observations are on how well these actually work in connecting people. 
Yes, Brad, that's, again, a really good question. I get asked this all the time, and, again, I think that if we take a step back and we understand, first, what are we trying to accomplish? So when companies try to leverage social network spaces like these, what are they actually trying to accomplish? If they're trying to accomplish better collaboration and communication, then how are they going to look at the results of whether or not they actually met the goals of the organization in improving collaboration and communication. What we have found is that open social networks like MySpace and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and, and other types of social networks like Second Life and virtual world type of environments certainly create places where people can go to share information. But in an organizational context, when we look at it in terms of the business strategy and we say, okay, do these things actually work and how do we make them work for us? The best results that we found is in companies that use these kinds of spaces in order to minimize virtual distance, even though they haven't necessarily called it that in terms of a goal. The types of environments that work best are those that bring people closer together in terms of affinity for one another, and that simplify their lives in terms of operational issues. So that's one learning. The other important learning that we found is that from an organizational point of view, again, these kinds of social network spaces work best if they're private and they can be considered trusted networks, and that they give people the opportunity to develop their careers and manage their professional life in a way that allows them to see true professional growth in terms of you know, job promotion, job satisfaction, better access into people and parts of the organization that they didn't get before, where the tangible evidence of benefits of these kinds of systems can easily be seen. So. When we look at things from a business point of view, we always I, I know myself as a leader and you know hundreds of others that I've talked to, including yourself, always tend to look at the big picture, and the big picture usually includes innovation, usually includes financial success, and usually includes some degree of measure of how satisfied people are and what kind of morale the organization is exhibiting because we know that those things are also extremely important to coming out with high levels of productivity and other critical factors. And so if these social networks are used and managed and encouraged to those ends where virtual distance is reduced, they can be trusted, they can be utilized in a private manner, and they can show tangible evidence to the individual that they're helping their career and their professional life, then they work extremely well. In the consumer space, obviously the jury is still out, as we have learned you know, over the, these past months and really this past year. The financial business model is still kind of hard to pin down. It's still a little bit squirrely in terms of whether or not organizations can actually make a profit by running these kinds of companies. And so in a consumer model, we have to look at ways in which we can reduce virtual distance among the consumers and the advertisers and those that are reaping reward out of the network. 
That's interesting you mentioned that from a business perspective because there was an article a few months ago in The Economist magazine that talked about the whole social network phenomenon in business. And as they pointed out, just like email, social networks will probably be part of our future, but it's not clear anybody's going to make money at it. It's a more of an interesting process that this is something that people are asking for, something that'll work effectively. And it may be the next killer app, but it's not necessarily clear that it's ever going to make money by itself. So that was an interesting comment. Now, one thing I do wonder about, though, even as we're talking about business and everything else, is the whole nature of age and generations as it relates to this. Obviously, I at least have come from a generation where none of this was around when I was a kid. We were barely getting color television when I was growing up. So things have evolved and changed, obviously, over time. And yet I remember some years ago in a TED conference talking to a young man who had just sold his first business at age 17 for $2 million. He was doing okay. And he described the Internet as just something that's there. It's part of their universe. It's part of their ether, their world. They assume it's there and they make use of it. So in the social networking phenomenon, is there perhaps a new generation of teenagers and young adults, maybe in Gen X and Gen Y, who are provided with the power of technology to reduce virtual distance through these social networks? And based on what you're saying, maybe things are actually getting worse for them. Yeah, again, Brad, this is a very interesting and important topic. We've actually done some work with the Gen Ys and Millennials and Gen Xers as well. And I think what you say is very important because we have to differentiate between the fact that the technology has become interwoven into their lives. So just like, as you were mentioning, we had the telephone when we grew up, the kids of today or the young adults of today have clearly grown up in an age where they expect the internet to be up and working and it's part of the entire infrastructure and system over which they communicate with one another. And just like in our generation, as in generations past, there are clearly going to be Gen Xers, Gen Yers, Millennials, and future generations that have a subset within those generations that are prone to being highly technically oriented, who enjoy technology, who get into the engineering of technology and really look at it as a form of how they will endeavor in their lives, how they will work with their lives and build a future for themselves. But in general, the Gen Ys and the Millennials, and to some degree the Gen Xers, although not as much as the Gen Ys and Millennials, in our experience, having talked to hundreds of them and surveyed and collected data from hundreds and hundreds of people in this space, is that they see it, just as you say, as part of the underlying infrastructure. But many of them do not see it as a replacement for what they really want out of life, which is very similar to what you and I wanted out of life, especially as young men and women coming into a job. What they want in general is a place to go, a place to make a home for themselves, a place to develop a live social life where people are walking together, talking together, you know, having fun, building networks of people that they know, that they see on a regular basis and so forth, because out of all of that comes happiness in terms of 
a young person's ability to feel that they belong to any given organization or any given group. And when I read things that kind of take a very broad brush to these populations and say, well, the only thing they really want to do or are comfortable doing is being on the Internet or whatever, I think that we are shortchanging them and we are also shortchanging ourselves. Because at the end of the day, they are just human beings who really do want to develop some kind of rich life. And that includes, and is very important at that age, the ability to see people face-to-face and to build genuine and authentic types of relationships. And they can't do this with technology alone. The technology can support them in different ways than, let's say, a phone supported us and so forth because they have a wider breadth of things to choose from in terms of sharing information with their friends, whether that be a friend as defined on MySpace or a friend as defined by someone someone sees pretty often. But from, again, from an organizational point of view, companies have to be wary that they don't overshoot the mark by putting up very sophisticated technological environments for these folks and then kind of miss the other side, which is providing them a space, a physical space, and an organizational environment that nurtures the kinds of relationships that they're looking for at that age. Plus, we sure change ourselves by not interacting with them face-to-face as much as we could. So back to your question, are things actually getting worse? I don't think we have enough data yet to say for sure one way or the other. I can say that from the over three or 400 cases that we've looked at, We certainly don't want to make any assumptions that this generation lives for technology alone and then forget to help them through their maturation as human adults. It's true. We don't need to have a race of our own cyborgs going forward, at least in terms of our assumptions. So moving back to the corporate and organizational issues, once you have begun to help a company understand the magnitude and nature of the problems, what can an organization do about reducing virtual distance within their company? Well, there are basically four steps that we recommend. The first thing to do is to measure the extent that virtual distance exists and the extent to which it's impacting organizational outcomes. And this can be done using a virtual distance assessment tool and calculating a virtual distance index. On the whole, our statistics show that when virtual distance is high, innovation relatively high as compared to when it's relatively low. Innovation can decrease by over 90% success on projects in terms of on-time, on-budget performance, as well as customer satisfaction can be reduced as much as by 50% or more. Leader effectiveness can be reduced by 50% or more. Job satisfaction plummets by over 60%. And trust within the organization among people who work there can really fall off by over 80%. So those are kind of the benchmark data that we have. Each company first has to really measure virtual distance, and see its impact within the organizational context that they're working in. The reason why you want to do this first is obviously so that we can aim our solution set at the right types of problems because different companies suffer from virtual distance in different ways. In other words, some companies can suffer from virtual distance on the affinity vector 
in a strong way. So they're having basic problems with fundamental relationship building throughout the organization. Other companies we've looked at suffer terribly from operational distance, multitasking, lack of understanding of which communication mode to choose, and so forth. And while that can lead to affinity distance, it's not necessarily the same thing. So solutions want to be aimed at fixing that. And then some companies do suffer at times from physical distance issues, so we have to kind of know if those are propping up as well. The second thing that we do is we need to map virtual distance because once we know kind of in general the extent to which it exists and is affecting organizational outcomes, we have to actually be able to see it because virtual distance is invisible. It's invisible because many of our traditional industrial age organizational structures, while they're still in place, no longer represent the functions of the people within them. So the kinds of things that were in place to stave off, let's say, cultural distance, for example, or look at someone who was multitasking much are basically gone. We don't work face-to-face anymore. Everyone is working on a computer. So we need to illuminate virtual distance, and we need to be able to unveil the cloak of invisibility that shrouds it. So to do that, we map it. And the way we do that is we build social network maps, but we don't just build the social network map. We actually look at the quality of the links as defined by virtual distance between the nodes in the map. So whether we're looking at group-to-group comparisons of virtual distance or we're looking at individual-to-individual comparisons, we map those, and then we look at virtual distance along those links. Again, the reason for this second step is to further tune our understanding of where virtual distance is impacting the organization. This is important because we don't want to take shots at fixing virtual distance in general because me, being a business person all my life, and many other people find that that can be just a waste of time. And so we want to hone and target our solutions as closely as possible to where they live. Once we've measured virtual distance, we've seen its effects relative to important outcomes for the company, and we've mapped virtual distance, then we build what we call virtual distance management plan. This can be done either at the strategic level. So, for example, companies that are looking to do foreign direct investment and will have a lot of M&A activity, want to build virtual distance maps that point them in the direction of where they're most likely to have problems at the organizational level with virtual distance. On the other hand, we work with a lot of companies that use project teams, and they're working on important projects. So in that case, we want to map the actual project team or program team if there are multiple projects and see where virtual distance lives within that particular group of individuals. Then the virtual distance management plan looks at each type of virtual distance that's germane to that company, that specific company, for that specific project or that specific strategy, and we design solutions around them. Some of those solutions include building better ways to close the gap on affinity distance by helping train leaders to recognize and shut down virtual distance among people that report to them, and this is done through different kinds of leadership techniques that focus more on developing attunement into the social dynamics of the organization as opposed to focusing on the outcome itself at all times. 
Other things that we do are more short-term and tactical. So, for example, if we have high criticality projects that are of high dollar value or have competitive importance to the organization, and we find that there are critical problems facing the project team, for example, in the short term because of virtual distance, we will look at ways to shorten that by a combination of reducing operational distance quickly as well as physical distance when need be. And there are some guidelines for physical distance issues, and that is there are times at a project or in an organizational initiative when physical distance really does need to be reduced. And we outline those in our book, but briefly highlighted, they include the beginning of a project team or strategic initiative. People should come together. If there are significant problems or major critical issues that need to be addressed quickly in order to improve the outcome, then bringing people together to solve those problems is essential. A third instance of when you want to bring people together in a physical setting is when you're delivering important information about a project's deliverable and making sure that the customer or client or the target recipient of this information understands fully the implications of the result. So for example, if we worked with a telecommunications company that was behind schedule on the delivery of a critical equipment component for one of their large customers. They opted to send an electronic message to tell the customer that they were behind on this critical component and would not make their delivery date. And the customer got extremely upset because they did not understand, A, why it was late, and B, what was going to be done to fix it. And the customer relationship was put at significant risk. So we helped them to quickly formulate a strategy and develop a communication that was eventually delivered face-to-face to not only do damage control to the situation because of the electronic communication, but also to make sure that the customer understood what the communication protocols would be going forward and, of course, when they would get their equipment. And then the fourth time that it's very important to come together face-to-face is when you're giving feedback, especially critical performance feedback, back to people who work for you or have worked on initiatives for you. Because any time there is an opportunity for someone to misunderstand something one might say and take it to heart in an emotional way that may significantly change their attitude and understanding of their place in the organization, in any negative way, then it's very important to be face-to-face. So obvious examples of this are when you're going to give someone a performance review, for example, or when you're going to tell someone why they did or did not get a raise or did or did not get a promotion. Those kinds of situations really require that the leader try, if at all possible, to be face-to-face. So in summary, we recognize virtual distance in terms of whether it exists or not and the extent to which it's impacting the company by measuring it, taking a virtual distance index. We then map it to unveil its invisibility and be able to see exactly where virtual distance lives. Then, based on that, we develop a virtual distance management plan so that leaders can target specific remedies 
to either reduce virtual distance if it's an as-is situation, or we can use virtual distance to predict potential problems so leaders come together to do what-if scenarios so they can avoid creating virtual distance in the first place. And then lastly, we implement virtual distance management plan to solve affinity, operational, and physical distance issues where needed. Well, thank you for that last answer, Karen. It's very thorough and I think gives people an understanding of what might be possible if they were to work with you, as well as what might begin to happen within their own organization. So out of that, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know more about you and your organization. If they wanted to contact you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, you can learn more about virtual distance and what we just talked about today by looking at our new book, Uniting to Work, Transforming Leadership and Innovation in the Globally Integrated Enterprise, published a couple months ago by John Wiley and Sons. And in terms of contact information for me, they can reach me at klojeski at virtualdistance.com or visit our website at www.virtualdistance.com. Well, Karen, thank you very much for that and for the very thoughtful interview and the very important work that you're doing. We appreciate it. So thanks for joining us this week on Stranova. Well, thank you for having me, Brad. I really appreciate being invited to your program, and I hope your listeners find this helpful. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution, Non-Commercial, Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.